Hey, listeners, it's your host, Asia. So happy President's Day. In honor of the holiday, we are bringing you a rerun of not one, but two of our favorite episodes. And they're both about John Adams' opera Nixon in China. Fun facts. Did you know that President Nixon was an accordion player and an accomplished pianist? He even did uh, performances at the White House, at the Grand Ole Opry, and he composed and played his own piece, Richard Nixon Piano Concerto No. 1, on a primetime TV show in 1963. All true stories. This discussion that you're about to hear on Classical Classroom is one that I had with Michael Rimson of the American Festival for the Arts, and it was so epic because we were trying to cover an entire two-hour opera that we originally divided it into two episodes. But today, we are splicing it into one for your listening pleasure. We hope that you enjoy it. And if you do like it, we hope that you'll go to iTunes and vote for us by subscribing to us and rating and reviewing us. Tell your friends. Tell their babies. Tell their mothers. Why not? <laughs> anyway, so uh, that's enough of me. Enjoy the episode. And God bless America. My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... The thing is, I want to learn. And as it turns out, I work with people who know a lot about classical music. Every week on this show, one of my coworkers will give me a homework assignment, a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the Classical Classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is Dr. Michael Rimson. He is a composer, author, educator, and administrator. He's um, the executive and artistic director of the American Festival for the Arts, which provides music education programs for young people. He's also a Moore School alum. Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, you that you were rocking that pink shirt, by the way. Thanks. It's pretty awesome. Hey. So what are we going to be talking about today? Well, uh, you know, we talked about doing a couple different pieces, but the one we settled in on is a, a piece that has a lot of history in Houston itself and is more and more being considered one of the big landmark works of the late 20th century, and that's John Adams' opera Nixon in China. Yeah, I read that it premiered in Houston uh, in 87? In 1987, and actually it premiered at the Wortham Center, and the Wortham itself was only five months old when uh, when the opera premiered. It had just opened that previous, I think it was in May, uh, that, it had, that it had opened. And really? so Nixon in China was actually one of the first large works to be premiered there. So why did you choose this piece personally? Well, uh, the piece for me has a lot of sort of personal resonance uh, as, an, as a composer and a specifically as an opera composer, to hear it and its very contemporary treatment of opera as a form and also, you know, that it incorporates a contemporary subject. Mm -hmm. And it, to me, it seems such an important vanguard and direction for opera in the late 20th century. And there had been a few before this that are considered very important, kind of like Philip Glass's Einstein on the Beach and some other works of, in that vein. But this was the one that for me personally really said, wow, this is really doable. You can take this language, you can take these kind of subject matters, 
and you can create a, a piece that is mm-hmm. super compelling. I have to admit that I have um, kind of an aversion to most opera <laughs> and and musicals yeah. because I don't know. There's something about people singing a story that just really gets to me. But I listened to some of this, and I gotta say, I was I was intrigued. It was n- not only did I enjoy the music, but the I don't know if there is a particular style. Of opera singing, without having the language to really talk about it, there's the crazy vibrato opera, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, then there's whatever that. this is, which mm-hmm. is really lovely. And well, it's written in a, in what you know, sort of in the music biz, we would call a very declamatory style. It doesn't use a huge amount of, uh, you know, sort of opera style singing, what we've come to expect, you know, sort of from the big, you know, giant operas, the Wagner and the Verdi and things like that. Um, and it's written so that the language, you know, part of it's, of course, it's in English, which helps you as an English speaker to connect in more to it, yeah. rather than being in a foreign language, which is probably the first reason why a lot of people are turned off to opera, because it's it's like, hey, this isn't a language I don't even know. And there's all <laughs> these people sort of wailing around on stage. I don't know what I'm supposed to be listening for. Right. And so this, because it's, um, you know, because it's written in a very straightforward style, and that the text is is clean. You know, they went to a, a brilliant poet named Alice Goodman who wrote this this text very, very cleanly. And then the text is repeated in the minimalist style. It's repeated a lot. And so it's very easy to grasp it, to get it, and to hear what's, you know, to really understand what's happening mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at any given moment. And uh, I think it makes it a lot more accessible. But, you know, let me say you're not alone in the world of people mm-hmm. who are kind of freaked out by, you know, by people standing on stage singing. You know, it's like... Something great is happening to me, and instead of celebrating, I'm just going to burst into song. I mean, right. that's just not. I mean, it's not real, and it's a convention that does take some getting used to. But some people, I guess, never get used to it. But when you do, it's just, it's a whole nother world, and it's it's so wonderful to watch the different nuances mm-hmm. of how people kind of get into the get into the world of opera. Yeah, I've definitely heard some opera that I thought was just, I mean, gorgeous. Like, I want to say it was Madame Butterfly mm-hmm. that I heard that I went, oh, wow, that is just breathtaking, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but this, I, I've heard, I've had a lot of people come on to the classical classroom and talk about, they, they always mention John Adams. Mm-hmm. I've, I've yet to have somebody come on and actually, you know, specifically I was, I was talk about first person foolish enough to John pick Adams. <laughs> so um, can you tell me a little bit about him as uh, a composer? About him personally? Well, he's... Um, he was born in 1947, if I'm not mistaken, and so he's just a little bit behind the other composers who get lumped into the term minimalism. Uh, he's just a little bit younger than Philip Glass or uh, Steve Reich, who I think both were born in the late 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, he went to Harvard, and then he went out to California, and so he's very influenced by a big variety of music. And so, you know, he's written a variety of orchestral pieces, and this was his first opera. This was the first time he'd ever been approached about doing an opera, was to write Nixon in China. And the man, it's worth mentioning, the the man who was kind of behind the whole thing was a director named Peter Sellers. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah. And he sort of was known for doing a lot of avant-garde theater and had come up in that world and had gotten very interested in doing opera. And he went to Adams and said, let's write an opera called Nixon in China. And Adams said, no. I I don't want to because, you know, Sellers was known for being kind of a bad boy in the theater and the opera world. And remember, Nixon's resignation is only, you know, 10 years earlier than this. And so 
Nixon was still a very polarizing figure in American mm-hmm. life, even at that point. People had very strong opinions about him. And certainly any reevaluation that we've done of Nixon over the years was still long off. And so when Adams said no, he thought this is going to – he did it because he thought it was going to be a satire. He thought mm-hmm. it would be an unfair treatment of it. But uh, Sellers was able to convince Adams to approach the story in a much more interesting way. And that's how they brought Alice Goodman, the librettist, in as well. And they turned the story into a story about mythology, about contemporary mythology mm-hmm. and the myths of who we are and how we create our own myths in a lot of ways yeah. and how then also the media plays an important role in kind of the mythologizing of public figures and private ones for that matter. Wow. And so each of the keys of the six characters who are made up, you know, who are central to the story, each one is kind of their own mythology as, and, and has created their own mythology on some levels as we meet each of them over the course of the story. Wow. Well, let's hear some of this. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, the You know, it's a two-hour opera or more than two-hour opera, and of course we don't have time for that in this context. And so I picked three excerpts that I thought would really introduce people to the story. Um, and the first one comes in Act One, and the opera opens with um, sort of a very dreamy kind of uh, tableau on stage, and you see all the Chinese people sort of standing there and they sing uh, in this very sort of philosophical style about the world and about what's happening. And and basically what it is is they're members of the Chinese military and they're waiting on the tarmac for Nixon's plane to arrive. Now, the other thing you got to remember is that anybody of a certain generation remembers watching this on the news, that this was, this was big, big news when Nixon went to China. Politically, it was a huge, huge deal. China had been, you know, was a communist country. Nixon was known as a very um, rabid anti-communist, and the the this visit was the beginning of of normalizing any kind of relations between the U.S. and China, and even the U.S. and the USSR, because Russia got sort of a little jealous that China and Nixon were getting together, and so they invited Nixon too, and that's what led to the first round of SALT treaties, which were the uh, strategic arms uh, talks yeah. that they had. So. So politically, this was everywhere on the news. And the images were, I mean, it was kind of like when the, the moon landing, you, a lot of people really remember these images very strongly. So they were super careful to recreate these images on mm-hmm. stage. I mean, it's almost like going back and seeing it on television again when you first see it. And in fact, the scene that we see, that I mean, the first scene we're going to listen to, when the plane arrives... And, the, and they, they literally had this giant sort of plane kind of roll in on stage. And the door opens and there's Nixon doing the peace sign thing, you mm-hmm. know, and Pat coming out. And it was so funny because all the characters on stage applaud. And actually everybody in the audience applauded too because <laughs> they remembered sort of that moment. And, it's, and, and you really get swept up. It's like, oh, well, it's the president. And so you start clapping, you know, yeah. do what you think you're supposed to do. And so he comes down and he shakes hands with... Um, Joe Enlai, and they, he starts to meet this sort of long, long, long procession of Chinese officials that are lined up on the tarmac to meet him. And as he sings, the music sort of explodes into this fanfare. And Nixon is shaking all the hands of the people, but he then turns and he's got this, just this explosion inside of him of the excitement of what's happening. And he sings this aria called News Has a Kind of Mystery. And it's all about the mythology of, of this moment. He's going, oh my God, this is, this is history. This is 
it's happening at this exact moment and we get his we get to sort of the bombastic americanism compared to the chinese culture that is happening at the beginning and we get his unbelievable energy and excitement uh over what is actually happening and the music just captures it perfectly i read recently that uh during mao's reign uh Western music had been completely banned mm -hmm. in China and wasn't, um, they didn't even start allowing classical music, Western classical music to be played there until 1978. Yeah. The Cultural and Revolution so, was very, yeah. I mean, Madame Mao and the Cultural Revolution was very, very powerful. Yeah, that, so it's, it's particularly... Um, poignant maybe I don't know to, to set this this very sort of contemporary Western opera there in a, in a place where that would where the not music have would been not have been heard exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly so yeah let's hear some yeah So you can hear the repeated text, yeah. you know, and how that, so that you really get it. And this very declamatory style, there's, it's, it's very just straightforward singing. Mm -hmm. Some people complain about that in hmm. the opera, that there's too much of that. But for the style of the music, I think it goes perfectly. Why do minimalists do that? Why do they do... Why do they use repetition? What, what is the... Well, the point of minimalism is to get a lot out of a little... Okay. Uh, out of out of a small sort of cell of music, and it does repeat, but there is an evolution that happens very very slowly in that repetition. It's based a lot on sort of Hindi concepts of time and evolution of thinking, and so something will be repeating, but and then maybe ten or fifteen seconds later, you realize, wait, this has changed ever so subtly, mm -hmm. and that slowness of that evolution is really what minimalism is about, okay. is about taking you on, on a, a journey, but appreciating all the small moments mm. that, you, that you go on with. Okay, that helps, thanks. And so you hear Cho Enlai in the background saying, I want to introduce you to, because there's just this procession of people going by. So we're hearing sort of Nixon's inner dialogue and then exactly. also what's going on outside. Exactly. And okay. it's that inner dialogue that is captured so beautifully in the music, the, yeah. the excitement, the yeah. tension, if you will. History, as we made history. Such a peculiar reference right there. The the text references the Flemish Renaissance painter Bruegel. Really? And it's he's talking about the flat the, the sort of the pale colors and the flatness of the countryside. And he says, Bruegel, Pat says. And it's like as if Pat leaned over to him and said, oh, it reminds me of this Flemish painter. And it's such a weird throwaway line, but it's so interesting at the same time. Yeah. It sets us up for Pat mm -hmm. in a very small way <laughs> when we meet her at the beginning of Act Two. We live in 
an unsettled time. We live in an unsettled time. The lushness of the harmonies and his use of the harmonies is very interesting. When he goes from one chord to another, especially in this aria more than in some of the others, it almost always has one note in common between one chord and the other. Mm -hmm. But the but f like for a theory teacher, you, it would be maddening because there's no real relationship between the two chords other than the fact that they have this note in common. Mm -hmm. But it's, it allows him to move in very, very fluid ways. So the music keeps moving along very, very nicely, but he can use these denser, more romantic sounding harmonies. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the orchestration, which is huge in this piece. I mean, Adams took the standard orchestra and added saxophones and synthesizers and really? pianos and a much larger percussion section. And it's so that he can get lots of different kinds of sounds out of the orchestra and lots, of, I mean, the color in here is remarkable. He sings, you know, news, news, has a kind of mystery. And essentially what that is, is it, it's a very traditional operatic structure for an aria where you have an idea and then a contrasting section and then you return to that idea. And in, in the Baroque days that would have been called a da capo aria, but it, it's not a specifically one here. But what it, it is a very sort of traditional structure for an aria. And I think that's really important in understanding what's happening because... Again, Sellers encouraged Adams to use a lot of the traditional operatic structures, and so what it allowed him to do was to be very adventurous with text setting and you know how this how the words are set to the music and mm -hmm. the colors in the orchestra and the rhythms. But if he's doing something very traditional in terms of the overall structure of the aria, it's something everybody can kind of hold on to. Everybody goes, "Oh, I know where I am. You know, I know where I am in this piece. I heard that before." Mm -hmm. And it breeds a certain kind of familiarity that, as mm -hmm. a listener, is very comforting. Hmm. So using this traditional structure with very non-traditional mm -hmm. sounds and sights mm -hmm. and, yeah, okay. It's the hallmark of, of, of what many would call neoclassicism. And that was, it was a movement in music at the early part of the 20th century where composers were experimenting with harmony and with rhythm and, uh, you know, they were really pushing the envelope in a variety of ways. And so by using a little bit of the traditional with a little bit of the modern, that mixture, yeah. theoretically, you know, that composers felt that it would make it more accessible for audiences and allow them to push the envelope in certain areas. Because if you push yeah. every envelope, you know, All you have musical chaos and nobody knows what to do anymore. Right. So, yeah. But having a little bit of the, the known with the unknown makes, makes the pill a little bit easier to swallow. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And so the neoclassicists and the neoromantics were very much, um, very much, you know, wedded to this notion. So with, uh, I always kind of tend to understand things in literary terms. Um, so say you've got poetry with a rhyme scheme mm -hmm. and you know whatever that scheme may versus be. free and verse let's it, say right so yeah. so we're talking shakespeare versus charles bukowski mm -hmm. sort of thing like <laughs> and, and so Mahler was the I mean, charles bukowski Allen ginsburg and and then neoclassicism sort of pulled it back in and said no wait let's form go back can and... be a useful tool yeah. yes exactly okay it's it's one of many useful tools that are at a composer's disposal and and any composer who was at the vanguard of something new that happened in, in music 
was pushing the envelope somewhere. Yeah. You know, and it was in the late romantic period where form was one of the things that was, I mean, a lot of things were getting pushed in the late, in that late romantic and early 20th yeah. century period. Composers were trying lots and lots of different things. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, it's, we've oversimplified the metaphor, but yeah, that's yeah. essentially correct. <laughs> like the next thing you know, ladies are going to be wearing pants and things Good are just getting God crazy. God forbid. Yeah. I know, showing their ankles and <laughs> right. exactly. Okay, let's get back to the music. Yeah. I know America is good at heart An old cold warrior piloting towards an unknown shore Through shores The rats begin to chew the sheets The rats, the rats begin to... And here a total change of character And, And this is his... You know, you can hear the lines, the rats begin to chew the sheets, and it's this suspicion, it's the suspicious side of Nixon who has to be on guard. I mean, this is a, it's not just all fun and games going over and making history and meeting, you know, the Chinese people and doing all of this. It's, there's this, there's something also, an undercurrent that he has to be very careful about. Sure, because he's, you know, he's going into a communist country, which, you know, as you said, he was particularly averse to to communism. Well, and the fate of, the fate of how people are going to live together on this planet hangs Mm -hmm. in the balance on some levels, not to get too prosaic about it. It, Well, yeah, but I mean, that's, that's basically... But the relationship between the East and the West was at a crucial point. The spinning globe from the flamethrowers of the mob. We must press on. How was Nixon received in China? Were they happy for him to be there? Oh, I think so. I mean, I don't know exactly. I mean, but I think it it, it represented a major step forward mm-hmm. in uh, in Chinese and American relations. Okay. And I mean, this was the groundwork. I mean, even still one would argue today that Chinese and American relations aren't ideal. Sure. And But this laid the groundwork for there to even be a dialogue. Yeah. And I think for all of them, they all knew the, the, the gravity of what was happening. All right, so that was the end of the original episode one. We're about to get to episode two of this discussion. But before that, here's your musical interlude. Okay, on to episode two. (laughs) Last time on Classical Classroom, Dr. Michael Rimson taught us about the composer John Adams, not the dude who signed the Declaration of Independence, and his minimalist opera, Nixon in China which is all about an actual trip President Nixon took to the actual country of China. Meanwhile, in the opera, Nixon was having a pensive moment, suddenly aware, was he, of his visit to China's place in the history books. But then his suspicious side came out, and he sang about rats chewing sheets. And now, for part two of our conversation with Dr. Michael Remsen and act two of Nixon in China. So back to the music. What are Oops. we going to hear next? Uh, well, I, th- I thought we would go to the beginning of Act Two. One of the things that the piece is particularly effective in is showing us the 
uh, the two women characters who were central to what was happening. And, and they are the focus of Act Two mm, okay. uh, of the opera. And, you know, Act One and Act Three are very much about the, the political side of what was happening, the sort of the surface, this, you know, the, the visual images that were seared into our collective consciousness. Mm-hmm. And Act Two is really about the two women who were at the center of what was happening. And the first of those two women was Pat Nixon. You know, Pat Nixon is a fascinating figure in, in contemporary history. She saw herself as a very as a very simple person and that she'd come from very humble backgrounds. She was a farm girl. And here she was. She married, you know, a nice boy who was a local politician who became president. And, you know, regardless of how we felt about her, she saw herself as very unprepared for what was happening. And, of course, this whole trip to China, this was unbelievable, you know, that, I mean, nobody had ever really done anything like this before, and and, and certainly not in such a public way. Mm -hmm. And like every first lady, she had a super important job to do, and that was to be the human face of what was happening, Mm -hmm. you know, over there. And so the images that are, you know, again, if you're a certain age, the there was this red coat that she wore that was knee length with these little knee boots that she had that she it seemed like she went everywhere in those when she was in China and that's what she wears throughout the entire opera <laughs> and you see her and this opening of act 2 is when she goes on a tour uh, she's taken by madame Mao, i mean by a uh, chairman mao's secretaries on a tour to see the real people of china if you will it's probably the most touching section of the opera where she goes from sort of place to place and, and meets people and sees people. And there's a very touching exchange that we'll hear in, in this section. It's not an aria, really. It's just a, it's just a scene. Can you, can you tell me, I mean, I understand a little bit what an aria sure. is. Yeah. is and That's it's an easy question. Sort of. <laughs> yeah. An aria, I mean, really in the most traditional sense, an aria is, it's a solo, uh-huh. uh, generally speaking. And it is a time when when the action of the opera kind of slows down mm-hmm. or stops and where the character can reflect emotionally. Usually it's a place where there's more emotional expression I see. on the part of the on the part of the character. And even here, this is we have the scene where where you know Pat is being taken around mm-hmm. and sees all these things and a lot of action is happening. And then at the end of this scene, she pauses. And she reflects on everything. She sings and she wishes, the aria is called This is Prophetic, at, which is halfway through Act Two. And she reflects on everything she's seen and expresses her wish for peace in the world. And it's a very personal moment. Mm-hmm. It's a very personal expression. And that's the difference between sort of the aria and the scene. You'll see mm-hmm. in the section we're going to hear, there's just a lot of things happening. Yeah. I mean, she's she goes to a factory that makes little um, ivory elephants, and she remarks, oh, well, this is the symbol of our party. And you can see her being the very, you know, the politician's wife. But then as we go further, she goes to a school and she sings to a child, you know, that she remembers when she was a teacher. And she said, this is so wonderful because now, you know, I was a teacher, but now I get to learn from you, from mm-hmm. the children of China in this very sort of personal moment uh, that we see. So it's all these things that happen. And then the aria becomes the summation, if you will, of that of that of those experiences okay. in emotion is an aria always a monologue no not always but okay. but generally in the most traditional sense yeah Ish. i'm always reluctant to speak in, <laughs> in absolute terms you yeah. know because somebody well, that, i mean that's true somebody out there will go that's not true there's it is you know i mean yeah. so it's generally speaking yeah. okay it's, it's more often than not it's a monologue. okay let's hear it let's hear the opening of act two yeah this is just the very beginning and so here at the beginning you, 
we have that same nervous energy mm -hmm. in the music that we had in news, but very different colors in the orchestra. The woodwinds, you mm -hmm. know, are are there, and even this these little sort of little sounds of the flutes and the mm -hmm. oboes sort of piercing the the texture. To me, this reminds me of birds singing almost like, and it sets a very soft beginning for the act, for the second act here, as opposed yeah. to this sort of very aggressive, you know, Nixon aria. It's just a much softer color mm -hmm. that it that we're surrounding, and we see Pat. She's lying on a bed, and she's wearing the red coat and the boots, and she sits up, and you can tell she's the stress of this is really weighing on her, and and she gets up. And she takes an aspirin and she tries to move around and then she's like, now nah, I'm going to lie back down. And so she lies back down for a while. And then she finally, then the, the secretaries arrive and start taking her around on the tour. Okay. wonderful section where she's when she sings the word triviality or trivial mm -hmm. it's just a second and it, it gives it this sort of harmonic flavor but then when she sings good lord it's this huge leap of an mm -hmm. octave or a tenth that that is her emphatic you know good lord you know, yeah it's, i'm very emphatic about it. it's a beautiful setting it's really one of the most melodically enchanting sections of the opera and you can tell that at least i like to think that adams felt very very warmly about Pat's character and gave her these really lovely melodies to sing. Is the the librettist the person who wrote the the words Alice trying Goodman, to yeah. yeah is she is she trying to um, sort of just introduce this character of Pat? Very human, yeah, like, very very okay. human here where you know she sings I treat each day like Christmas and trivial things are not for me. Okay, I like that. Every, treat every day like Christmas. And now the uh, Chairman Mao's secretaries have come to take her on her tour and will take her around and they say, you know, look at, look at the earth, look at the, you know, the simple things that are out there. And it's how they connect initially, mm -hmm. is around the simplicity, each in their own way. Are they sort of acting like a like a chorus? Very much so. Okay. I mean, the 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 casting it's really actually quite brilliant of the of Chairman Mao's secretaries. It was three women who sang in unison the whole time. So they did. They were like this little Greek oh. chorus running around stage <laughs> the whole time. Neat. And again, this softness of the mm -hmm. orchestral texture. Symbol of our party cries 
So she's holding the statue of the yeah. elephant. And she thinks it's one of a kind. And the, and the secretaries are like, no, this is mass produced in our factories. And, you know, they, it, the elephant for the Chinese is a symbol of the, the abilities of the communists to do all of this and you know, oh. to churn out thousands of these in factories every day where she's seeing it as this metaphor for the, for the party, for the Republican Party right. and its successes. So very interesting, this small object becoming, you know, two very different ways of looking at the object. Yeah. Uh, and it represents the sort of two very distinct viewpoints of the characters mm. on stage. And now, and all of this, you have to remember, was on the news. I mean... That they go to a clinic and she sees someone get a shot and she's like, oh, ouch. You know? <laughs> and, but all of this was on the news. You know, yeah. you saw they're, these, they're following the her around and with cameras. Literally we, yeah. And we're okay. literally following history around in the context of the of the opera. And so now they go to a farm and everybody's yelling because they say, oh, come see the pig. It's a prize winning pig. And you'll hear the chorus here and they sing pig, 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 pig. And it's a, it's a hilarious text setting here. Wonderful sense of humor here. <laughs> and these wonderful brass surges underneath. <laughs> And hear the complexity of the rhythms, mm -hmm. so much more interesting than sort of the you know the the cliche of what minimalism is. This rhythm is very jarring and yeah. interesting and fun. And, and then here she meets the children. This is. It's so explicit. We are some children having fun. Yes, I know. It's very, it's sort of, again, that directness and, and what gets lost in the translation. It's like, uh -huh. yes, here are some children having fun. Here's the music from the opening again. Adam's very cleverly bringing it back around to the beginning, mm -hmm. uh, to the music we heard at the beginning of the scene. And again, sort of helping us connect our way through, you know, a fairly long, a fairly mm -hmm. long act here so that we have sort of guideposts, if you will, like an to, anchor. to take us through yeah, in a lot okay. of ways. Yeah. Uh, the scene melts away and Pat is left alone on stage and she sings her great aria. This mm -hmm. is prophetic mm -hmm. about everything she's just witnessed and what this means to her and again the the, the wish for a peaceful future mm -hmm. and she'll move into it right here so yeah. you said the second act mainly focuses on these two women so so and it, it's pat nixon nixon's, in the beginning nixon's wife yeah and then also mao's and then on madame mao is is for the complete opposite okay. for the for the second half of the act and what happens is is after this scene we we go to the, I think it's at the Imperial Palace, and uh, the Nixons have been invited to see a ballet. Mm -hmm. And they actually recreated a real ballet uh, for the piece. It was a ballet called The Red Detachment of Women. And mm -hmm. it was written by Madame Mao. Uh, and it told the story, I mean, it told the story sort of true to the heart of communism, where you had a sadistic 
brutal landlord who represents money, uh, who is uh, ultimately beaten by a group of women farmers and laborers, and how these women rise up and they 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 are able to uh, prevail mm-hmm. over the brutal landlord. And so, of course, the, here's you know it's promoting the values of communism. And so they, so the Nixons are invited to this performance, and this actually happened. This part of it actually happened where they were invited to the performance. But then, they, <laughs> uh, in the performance of the opera, they take some real liberties here. And first off, the the brutal landlord is portrayed by the Henry Kissinger character. Mm. Uh, he he sort of folds into the action. And there's a scene where he is whipping the heroine, uh, our, our, the, the the girl who's the heroine of the of the piece, and he's whipping her. And Pat gets so caught up in the moment of what's happening, that she rushes on stage to protect the girl, and she becomes essentially part of the action. And Madame Mao is um, furious that this has happened. And so she sings this huge aria. I mean, now this is an aria. (laughs) And it it is a bravura piece that is extraordinarily difficult called I Am the Wife of Madame Mao. And in the aria, she reasserts her position as the leader of the Cultural Revolution and and that nobody is, you know, sort of more important than she is at this particular moment. And she reasserts her place in what is happening at this moment in history. And this is a crazy aria. It is very, very difficult to sing. Some people have compared it to the famous Queen of the Night aria from Mozart's The Magic Flute, which is also notoriously difficult to sing. When you say bravura, it bravura, is just, what does it that is, mean? It is the, um, it's the character like of, of the aria of? itself, where she, where she is bigger than life, and okay. she is, pro, she is proclaiming her, you know, herself. She is standing up and assuming her place in the picture Got of what's it. happening here, and so it is. But yes, this, this sense of bombasticness. Mm-hmm. What is the adjective for that? Bombasticity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but she, it is, it is a. Um, you know she's she's furious, and but she is also um, she is she's going to make sure that everybody knows who she is and what her place in this moment is. Okay. And so, it is it is um, a wonderful wonderful aria. And we sh- let's listen. Yeah. Yeah. So you get this rhythm, this magisterial rhythm. Ba dum bum, ba dum bum, ba dum bum. love the use of the text there because because she's first she sings when i appear the people hang and then she sings when i appear the people hang on my every word (laughs) and so it gives you two very different meanings of what's happening there and you hear the brass are just i mean just pounding the rhythms away Mm -hmm. in this aria and so it gives it this huge sort of furious character uh that underscores this whole thing and then here she's just soaring up
is all opera so literal, or is just is this an Alice Goodman thing? I mean, it, it, like there are all these points where I'm noticing that she's saying, "I am the wife of Mao Zedong." Mm-hmm. You know, and the children earlier were singing, "We are children playing." Yeah, it, it, it's very. It is. A, I, no, it's not. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but there certainly are lots of examples in in opera, especially early opera, where characters kind of come out and say who they are. But this is a very different kind of scene. You know, okay. I mean, the she's reasserting her position here. It's it's not just oh. like she's not introducing herself. She's there are saying, like, she's saying I'm the wife yeah, of Matt. Who's got like, two you thumbs? Need to yeah, pay who, attention. That's right. Who's got two <laughs> thumbs and is the wife of Madame Matt? That would be this guy. <laughs> you know, that's that's what's happening here. It's not. Like she's introducing herself to the okay. to the characters. And she's the like recognized. Yes, yes. You okay. will you will uh, respect my authority. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, all of this as she sings, you know that everything that she follows the book, which is of course the book of. Mao Zedong's sayings. The Little Red Cookbook. This, exactly. And so that everything she does is by the book, which reflects her philosophy of, and and also her importance. And then she sings this middle part here. She's singing, so let me be a grain of sand, you know, which is very sort of philosophically tied into this Mm -hmm. kind of the concept of communism, that that you're just one of many, you know, even if you're important, but you're still one of many. But then she'll jump back up and she's, and then we'll come back. And again, the structure of this aria is very much the same as in news. We have an opening, a middle section, here with the chorus joining in, and then we'll return to the I am the wife of Madame Mao at the end here. Wait, what are they shouting? Joy. Oh, okay. <laughs> notes and the texture of this almost sounds like an organ at mm-hmm. times it just that sort of bombastic sound mm-hmm. just behind her it's like all the force of the orchestra mm-hmm. is just right there and which only adds to the difficulty for the singer i love those those uh, i don't know if it's trombones or what but the sort of blowout oh, sound i know yeah. oh my god so the, cool. the low brass section gets a workout in yeah. this opera <laughs> Bass drums. The music in this part is so different than everything else. Mm-hmm. Well, because it's there's no place else in this opera where the emotions are so on the surface. Okay. Really, I mean, it's. I mean, sh- this is. You know, you will pay attention to me. Mm-hmm. You will. You will respect me. Yeah. And it's all just right on the surface. And so I think he. I think Adams very wisely brings the brass and the percussion in here just to 
you're gonna feel this in your bones. If you're sitting right. in the audience, this is gonna go right through you. The seats are shaking, mm -hmm. yeah. There are, there are just so, there's so much to take in with opera. There are- <laughs> Every single one, yep. So, so many moving parts, I mean, it's, it's, um, it is unbelievable everything that's going on. You know, you the just prep work, I'm sure. when you really, you know, it, it, it's kind of almost fun to like go to an opera once and absorb the story and the music, and then go back and when you're a little familiar with the piece, and just think about like, oh my God, what are all the mechanics that are making this happen? You know, all the stagehands, the mm -hmm. chorus, the orchestra, the lighting guys, the costume people who are running around, the sets. I mean, there's, it is an, a, a small army of people who pull off magic virtually yeah. every day. I know. You're ready for the bar after that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One fun, fun fact, too, is, you know, if... if it, it, it is a great opera, and it's really for the pieces in the last quarter of the 20th century. I mean, it's probably the one that's going to have the most legs, and mm -hmm. I don't dare to prognosticate on some levels, but, you know, 100 years from now, this this opera will be in the history books, I'm sure of it. Mm -hmm. And it's an important work, and it's had a, a, a variety of performances. You know, it's had many performances since the premiere here in Houston, but a fun thing that actually they just announced recently is that um, Houston is going to restage the work for the 20th, really? for its 20th anniversary. So Neat. if you can hold on till 2017, I think it's the 16-17 season where they're going to where they're going to do it again. I'd so, actually like to see that. Oh, I will the, definitely. I mean, this sounds have, really interesting. I will definitely have my tickets. That's no no question about it. I'll go at least at least once and probably a couple times because it's know, just a great opportunity to see this work. Yeah, you've um, me saying that I'm like. Yes, I would love to go see that opera. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Means that you have worked yeah. magic, Michael Houston Rosen. Grand Opera, you need to call the station right now and <laughs> sell this lady a, a subscription. Yes, please. <laughs> well, Michael Rimson, thank you so much for coming onto the program today. It's really been totally my pleasure. It. I've had a gas. Yeah, it's been awesome. Everybody, thanks for listening. If you have something that you would like to hear on the program, please send me an email at dclay at classical917.org. And if you need to find out about past or present episodes or any other information that's possibly relevant to the show, go to classical917.org backslash classroom. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.